more sermon than I should have, so we'll, we'll get to it quickly. Um, I want to share with you a diagram to start off. Uh, if you were to go to Google and type in life cycle of a church, you will come up with hundreds of pictures. All of them look very similar to this one. Uh, also, I could point you to at least a dozen books that all lay out the same cycle in even greater detail. All right, so if you look at this chart, notice the far left, and it shows how churches start really small when they're first born. Uh, if I heard the story right, Gwinnett started as three families meeting in a backyard. Right? I mean, it starts really small, but then you go on up the, the, the slope and you go through your birth to growth and maturity, and this is the time when churches are exciting. Okay? Everything's new, we're moving towards greater maturity, people are engaged, ministry is happening. Okay? It's on the left side of the chart where churches grow and build and do and life is great. Okay? But then you notice there's a problem. Right? Eventually, churches quit growing and they plateau. Right? Other diagrams call this the maintenance stage. Right now, we're not doing new ministries and new activities. Okay, there's not a lot of outreach that's happening here. Now, we're much more interested in just holding on to the things that we've already got. Here is where a church gets comfortable. Okay, we like our size. We like our shape. We like who we are, and we don't want to take any more risks. And typically... Uh, churches hit this plateau or this maintenance stage when they get into their second generation, right? And by the way, generations are speeding up. As the world gets faster, the, the length of time that it takes to have a generation is getting shorter. Okay, now, typically, churches are hitting generation two around the 20 to 25-year mark, give or take a little bit, all right? After that plateau, then comes a period of decline. All right, and the graph doesn't show this to scale, but churches can live in decline for a long time, okay? sometimes several generations of a church slowly being in decline, and it doesn't always look like decline or even feel like it because it is so gradual. Right? And one of the ways that you know you're in decline as a church is if you keep thinking back to the good old days, right? If your conversation is all about, do you remember when? Or you remember how we used to, or the way we used to be is, etc., etc. Right, and by the way, this isn't all bad. Hey, lots of churches are in decline in America today uh, because the community that they are in is in decline. Right, most small communities in America are now shrinking, and so the churches in those communities are shrinking to correspond with the community that's shrinking. Okay, this life cycle is all very natural. Uh, individual churches were never meant to be eternal. God tells us his kingdom is what's eternal, right? All right, and this life cycle doesn't just describe churches. Okay, this describes lots of things in life. This happens to businesses, right? You gain market share, you hit saturation before people move on to new products. Okay, this happens in romantic relationships all the time. Okay, you start on the left where we're madly in love and I want to know everything about this person. And then you get into that, eh, now I know everything about this person. And then you get into decline where you think, now I know way too much about this person. Right? Okay, this can happen in your spiritual walk too. 
you start out, you get baptized, you're on fire for Jesus, everything's new and exciting and wonderful, and you see that you're growing, and you're growing more Christ-like every day, and then eventually what happens is you kind of hit that cruise point in life where nothing much is changing, and then before you know it, you're sort of in this decline, your passion burns out, and you don't have the same fire for God that you used to. All right, but thinking about churches and just keeping it on the church thing and on our own spiritual walk, okay, where is GCC on this chart? Okay, where is our congregation? If you had to plot us on this chart. All right, well, Gwinnett is still a young church uh, in every sense of the word. Right, our overall age demographic is younger than most churches. The length of time that we've existed as a church is younger than most churches. Okay, let me ask, how many of you came to this church after this building was built? How many of you are here since? Okay, the vast majority of us have been here a relatively short period of time. This church building is less than 10 years old. Okay? As a church, we are a young church. Right? I think we are still somewhere on the left side of this chart, somewhere on that growth and maturity part of the curve, right? Which, you think about how long this church has been around, that's where we want to be. That's where we should be. But what's supposed to come next for us? I think if we're not intentional about it, we are heading towards eventual plateau and then decline. Now, the reason I show you this chart and talk about all this this morning is because I have been at churches on the other side of plateau. Have many of you been at churches before where you're on the other side of the chart and you're hitting that decline stage? And once you get there, once you get far enough down the right side of the chart, it becomes really hard to ever grow again. The further you go down that right slope, the harder it is to ever turn things around. Now, the other reason I show you this chart is because I don't think it's inevitable. I think this is one possibility for us as a church, and I think this is also only one possibility for your individual walk with God. In other words, I don't think decline is inevitable. It doesn't have to look like this chart. Here's a second chart I want to show you. There's a second option. Notice what happens here. After you get to that plateau stage, there's an option. You can go into decline or... You can hit renewal. All right, so notice on the right side of this chart, there's only two options though, right? At some point in the life of a church and in the life of your own relationship with God, you will either go into a period of renewal or you will go into a period of decline. I think there are only two options for you. I think as a church, we are either growing or declining. I think in your spiritual walk, you are either growing or you're declining. Is that fair? In other words, you can't just hang out at plateau. You can't get to a point where you say, okay, now we're comfortable and we can just relax where we're at. I don't think it works that way. All right. All of this brings us to the book of Hebrews. If you haven't already done so, open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 1. All right, most letters in the New Testament are written to churches in the early part of their life cycle. And most of what Paul writes is written to baby churches, right? It's churches that he established within just the last few years. Now he's writing them letters to tell them how to do church and how to be with each other and how to handle the problems that they're having. Okay, Paul writes to solve a lot of baby church problems. 
or sometimes we get books in the New Testament challenging very specific problems, right? Like in Galatians, we're targeting the Judaizers. In Revelation, we're talking about imperial persecution. Those are very specific problems happening to churches. Hebrews, however, as a book, is a little different than any other book in the New Testament. Okay, Hebrews is one of the last books written in the New Testament. It's one of the latest books. Okay, and it addresses a church hitting the second generation. Okay, it's a church that's plateaued. Maybe it's even a church that's starting their decline. Right? And the big problem that we address in Hebrews is not some specific false teaching, it's not baby church problems, it's not some big persecution. Okay, the problem in Hebrews is that over time, after the initial excitement fades, the cost of a regular and sustained commitment to Jesus just becomes a little more than what we bargained for. Okay, in other words, over time, it's just harder to care like you used to. Right? In Hebrews, they look at the life of the Christian. They say, hey, this is a very hard life. It requires sacrifice. It requires a lot of discipline. Then they look at their neighbors, at their pagan neighbors. It looks relatively easy to live without this Christian commitment. And so over time, they are lessening their commitment to the church. And once that happens, inevitably, you will fall away. Okay, I don't think in Hebrews there's this big crisis of, oh, I don't believe in God anymore and I've decided to just live like a pagan. Okay, I don't think that's the temptation. Okay, I think the temptation is that you wake up one day, you still believe in Jesus, but you're so busy living your life that you're no longer busy working in his kingdom. Okay, you see why I think Hebrews may be the most relevant book in the entire New Testament for the church today? So what do we do? How does Hebrews address this problem? How do we regain our fire for God? How do we go to renewal instead of decline? What does it look like as we grow older in our faith, as we grow older as a church, to keep our commitment for God instead of hitting that what seems to be inevitable decline? You got the question in your head? All right. Notice how Hebrews addresses this. Notice how the book starts, chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. All right, if I want to not just peek out at some point and then decline in my faith, if I really want to hit renewal, if I want to continue growing in God past those initial excitements in my life, it all starts by listening to God. Hey, if you're taking notes, write this down. This is really my one point this morning. Uh, you'll have to wait a couple weeks to get point number two because next week is Mother's Day. 
Okay, but step number one in any real true discipleship of Jesus Christ, if I really want to follow the Lord, it starts by listening to God. All right, here's what the author of Hebrews says. Okay, if you look at the history of God's people, God has always spoken to his people. Okay, Moses had his burning bush, God appeared to Joseph in dreams. Uh, Later you get guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah who are the prophets and they preach to the people and say, here's the word of the Lord for you today. Okay, following God has always and will always start by listening to the voice of God. Okay, but what's more impressive than a burning bush? What's more impressive than an angel showing up and giving you a vision? What's more impressive than dreaming that God says something to you? Okay, Hebrews says it's the incarnation. Okay, the only thing more impressive than God speaking through some other mediary is if God were to show up and speak to you himself. Okay, well, what happened in the gospel? Okay, Jesus, God becoming flesh, the Son of God himself coming to the world and speaking to us. The incarnation miracle is that God cared so much for us that he came and spoke to us directly. Okay, the reason we're here this morning is because we believe in the Word became flesh, right? If you remember back on Mount Sinai, uh, Exodus chapter 20, when God first gives the Ten Commandments, uh, there's a really interesting story there that I think we skip over too quickly. Okay, God gives the Ten Commandments, and we say, okay, here's all the things you're supposed to do, Israel. And then immediately it says that the people quaked in fear. Why were they so afraid? They said to Moses, they said, God showed up and spoke to us directly, and that was terrifying. Moses, don't let God talk to us anymore. Okay? Moses, you go talk to God, and then you come tell us what he says, but this direct relationship thing is just too heavy. It's too much for us to handle. Okay, so here's how the book of Hebrews starts. He says, okay, if it was important for you to listen when Moses and the prophets spoke, how much more important is it for us to listen to the message of Jesus, who is God? If it was important for you to listen when even angels came down and spoke a word from the Lord, how much more important is it now that we have the message of Jesus himself? The big question that Hebrews starts with is he's looking at all of us and asking, are we really listening? Because here's our problem, and here's what you and I do a lot in our lives. All right, and we do it in all sorts of different contexts, but it's really bad when we do it to God. Okay, we are really good at hearing without listening. Right, we're really good at hearing the words people say to us. Okay, for most of us, our hearing is fine. Our problem, though, is what? We're not really listening. Okay, I'm talking to those of you on your phones right now, too. By the way, I can see your phone. By the way, you know that, right? Like that's never mind. Okay. Uh, I put this story on Facebook this week, so some of you heard it, but I couldn't properly convey the tone, and so I'm going to tell you this story now, even though you, some of you already know it. Uh, the other day, Rachel and I were eating dinner, and Sam, our three-year-old, about to be four-year-old, comes up to us and says, I would like to have a popsicle. We tell him, you can have a popsicle after we are all done eating dinner. You can't have one right now. Okay, well, he's very stubborn because he takes after his mother, and so he comes back, and he says, I want a popsicle. And so I look at him and I say, okay, I'm almost done. Give me two minutes and I'll get you a popsicle. Okay, that kid looks at me eyeball to eyeball and says, just like this, he goes, I'll give you one. 
And just the thought of saying that to my dad made my backside hurt now. And I'm, and I'm 34, right? Okay. Without question, one of the biggest problems that I have in my house is that my children don't listen. Okay? They hear, they hear the words I'm telling them, right? But they don't listen. True story. I have actually had the hearing checked in both of my children. I know for a medically documented fact that both of their hearing is fine. Their problem is not that they don't hear the words we're saying, the problem is they don't listen. Hey, I'm just thankful that all of you who are older than I am tell me it gets a lot better when they become teenagers, right? So I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for that, and that'll be good. Yeah. Okay, now as adults, we do this too. How many of you have ever been in conversation with your spouse, and your spouse insists that they told you something, and you're doing the rewind thing in your head thinking, I know you said some of those words at some point and strung them together, but I have no idea what you said to me earlier, Okay. Husbands, you've ever done that? No, you've never done that. None of you have ever done that before. Okay? Occasionally in my house, Rachel has had to repeat stuff to me because even though I heard the words she said, I wasn't really listening, which is part of why she's not supposed to talk to me if I'm watching OU football, right? Because I'm not responsible for hearing what she said at those, those points in time. All right, so here's what we do, and it's sad when we do it to God. We are very good at hearing without listening. So here's three ways that we do that to God. We hear without listening, okay? Uh, letter A. First thing we do to hear without listening is we only listen to the stuff that we already agree with, right? We only listen to that with which we already agree. Now, this is going to sound really nerdy, okay? But the other day, I read an interesting article on the neuroscience of changing your mind, okay? What does it take for us to actually change our minds about something. All right, and what the article said is basically, it's easy to change your mind when it's something that you don't actually care about. Okay, for instance, uh, most people believe that Napoleon was short. Right? You've heard that before? Napoleon was a really short guy. Um, turns out he really wasn't short. He was five foot seven, which for his day was the height of the average Frenchman. Okay? He was, Napoleon was average height. Now, the reason we all think he was short is two reasons. One, all of his personal bodyguard was the biggest dudes he could find, and they were all over six feet tall, so he looked short by comparison. Okay, second reason is the British circulated a rumor that he was a really small guy in order to make him appear much less scary. Okay, it's propaganda. All right, so historical figures actually show he was an average height. Okay, now, if that's new information for you, you can change your mind about your opinion of Napoleon because you really don't care, right? Does it matter to anyone whether Napoleon was tall, short, or average? No, you don't care because he died 200 years ago and it's completely irrelevant, okay? So with information like that on stuff we don't really care about, it's fairly easy for us to change our minds. Now, the opposite of that, though, is if we start talking about something that's part of your core beliefs, if we start trying to challenge how you see the world around you, something that is actually part of your core, 
then we are extremely resistant to changing our minds. And it really doesn't matter how much factual information we are dealt with. In fact, the more facts that we are given, the harder we will dig in our heels in order to believe what's part of our core belief system. Okay? This is why you can't win an argument on Facebook. Right? It's impossible. You will not win. And let me say this slowly. You will not win an argument on Facebook. Okay? I know I've used this story before, but I really can't think of a better one. Uh, back when I was uh, teaching at the church in Texas I was at, I was teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and I got to the part in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites do. Okay, how do the hypocrites pray? They go out and they pray on the street corner so everybody can see them, and they want to make sure that all the pagans can see how holy they are, Right? Jesus says, when you pray, don't do it where all the pagans can see you pray. How do you pray? Go home, go in your closet, shut the door. Why? Because prayer isn't about doing it in front of people. Prayer is all about you praying to God, right? And if you're thinking about how people around you see you, you're doing it wrong, all right? And so I said, and got almost run out of town for, I said, this is why I don't like praying in restaurants. Okay? You would have thought I had suggested we replace communion with Big Macs and fries. What do you mean we don't pray in restaurants? I said, I don't care if you pray in restaurants. I just don't want to pray in restaurants because Jesus said you go home and you pray privately. Okay? And I don't want to pray out in public where all the pagans can see me. Okay? I think you're supposed to do what Jesus said. Okay, we argued about it for a while. Finally, someone basically said to me, but I don't care what Jesus says. We've always prayed in restaurants. But I can't win this argument, right? All right. Psychologists actually have a word for this phenomenon. It is called the backfire effect. Okay, this means that when our core beliefs are ever challenged, we will dig in our heels and believe even more strongly in our original belief and almost never change our minds. Okay? We only like to listen to information that supports what we already believe. Now, this is extremely problematic when we are studying Scripture or trying to listen to God's will for our lives because God doesn't deal in the trivial. God's not interested in changing a few facts and figures in your head. God is interested in changing your soul to walk more closely in line with Jesus Christ. When God speaks to you, He's aiming at the very core of who you are. And if we are so entrenched in who we already are, we will never be able to truly listen to the Word of God. Alright, letter B. Another way we hear without listening uh, is that we will limit how God can speak to you. All right, here's what I mean by that. Uh, I'm extremely suspicious of the coworker I used to have who would come back to work and say, well, I ate at Wendy's today instead of McDonald's because God told me to. Okay? Maybe he did, but I'm suspicious. All right? I'm also suspicious of people who said, well, I had a dream last night, and now I know what I'm supposed to do with my life, and then tomorrow they have another dream, and every night they're having these dreams, and it's all these visions for God. I'm suspicious as to whether or not God's really speaking through those dreams or whether they're just hearing what they want to hear through the dreams that they're having. All right? I'm suspicious. All right, but even though 
I think that some people can err on the side of thinking that everything is God speaking to them. I wonder if sometimes I overplay it the other way and live as if God never speaks to me. Okay, here's what I mean. Do I actually let God speak to me in prayer? In my prayer life, do I think God ever actually leads me? Or do I pray in such a way that assumes that God only cares about what I have to say and I'm never actually listening for God at all? Do I limit how God can speak? Okay, do I hear God speaking to me through the wisdom of the community? Okay, I am a big believer in us needing each other desperately. I think we are so radically individual in the way that we try to live our Christianity that we deny that we actually need each other and that God can ever lead us through the wisdom of each other. I think that's a huge problem in the church today. Are we actually listening to the brothers and sisters around us that God can be using to help us mature? All right, do I read Scripture or do I actually let Scripture read me? I think you can easily become a Bible scholar and know all the books and know everything that's in the details and never actually let it change your life. Do we let Scripture read us? Okay, so some questions to ask yourself on this is, what does your prayer time actually look like? Okay, when you pray, are you spending some time just in real silence connecting with God or are you just going through a laundry list of stuff? Okay, what does your Bible study time look like? Are you just reading a chapter of the Bible really quickly so that you can say you did it and check off a box? Or are you actually letting the Word of the Lord penetrate your soul? Okay. Also, what's more important in your life than showing up at church for Bible class? Okay. What do you have going on on Sunday mornings for that little 45-minute period of time that is more important than you being here and studying Scripture with your brothers and sisters and hearing the Word of the Lord with your family? I think all of us desperately need to be studying Scripture, not just privately one-on-one with God, but with each other. I think there's a whole lot of wisdom that comes in studying Scripture with our brothers and sisters. And I think your brothers and sisters need you in the room studying Scripture with them too. Okay? You don't have anything more important going on Sunday morning than studying Scripture with your brothers and sisters. All right? I know I'm meddling now, but come to Bible class. Okay? I know some of you have some medical things and it's all you can do to sit still for one hour and I understand that. For most of us, come to Bible class. All right, letter C. Third way we can hear without listening uh, is that we stay satisfied with where we are. Okay? Um, a lot of the reason that we end up plateaued is because we're content, right? But again, the problem with plateau is you can't stay there. Right, you're either growing or you're declining. Now you think about the story of Moses. God shows up. Moses was very happy counting sheep. In fact, Moses gets into a big argument when God does start speaking because Moses said, God, I don't want to follow you right now. I'm happy with where I'm at in life. Okay? I'm pretty happy in my middle-class suburban life right now. Okay? If I'm too comfortable, though, what happens? I quit listening to God. I think often God will speak into our pain because that's one of the only ways He can get our attention. Right? Don't be too comfortable. All right, the first section of the book of Hebrews is chapters 1 through 4. 
And it starts with an exhortation to listen to God. That's what we read earlier in the service. Now I want you to notice how this big section ends. Okay, notice chapter 4, starting in verse 12. He says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Right, typically when we think about the Bible as the sword of the Spirit, right? we go to the passage in Ephesians where we think about, okay, I've got this sword that God's given me, this word of God, and by using this word of God, I'm going to be able to go out and combat all the forces of evil in the world, right? And I like that image of the sword because it's a weapon that I can use on offense. Okay? Something I can use against the stuff out there. Notice, however, that in Hebrews chapter 4, that's not the image. It is not God is giving you this sword so you can go out and fight the forces of evil. The image here is God has a sword, which is his word, that he's going to use on you. Okay? This is dividing your soul and spirit, your joints and marrow. Okay? This is the word of God should be penetrating your soul and changing who I am before God. I think deeply listening to God is hard for us because if we really take the time to listen to God, it shows us a mirror. Okay? We read the passage in James earlier where if we're really looking in a mirror, if we're really listening to what God says, then suddenly that shows me my ugliness and my jealousies and my lusts and my judgmentalism and my pettiness and my anger and all those flaws that live within me. So most of us, what we do is we don't really listen. Because if I don't listen fully, I don't have to look in that mirror and I don't have to really see how I truly am before God. Most of us are satisfied with where we are, and that's why we don't grow as we should. Okay, so here's my final thought for the morning, and that is this. If you haven't felt your heart pierced recently, then you haven't been listening very closely to God. Okay? Are you really listening to what God is saying? Are you really taking the time to hear a word from the Lord? Following God always starts by listening. All right, at this time in our service, we're going to have a few verses of an imitation song. Uh, during the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. Uh, and this is a time in our service where we as the church want to be here for you. If you have a prayer request or a need, or if you'd like to sit down with us and study God's word, uh, if there's anything we as the church can do for you, this song is the time to come forward. And before we sing that song, though, I'd like to close this with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace.